Hi, thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the latest episode of Unspun, a podcast by Population. This week, we're going to talk about the need for an integrated and interconnected approach to sustainability with Christian Smith. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries. I'm Danielle Arzaga. I'm Catherine Tedrow. And I'm Lauren Hill. And this week, we're excited to talk to Christian Smith about an integrated and interconnected approach to sustainability. With a career that spanned the business and NGO sectors and environmental and social issues, Christian has a much needed take on how to approach sustainability to create real change. Christian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. Good to be here. And when we read your your interview with Heather Mack and diversity and sustainability, and you talked a little bit about having and struggled with imposter syndrome. We were really curious to know how much of that had been due to there not being a lot of Black people at your level in the, in the industry, um, and you occupying a lot of predominantly white spaces. What we see, I mean, it might be a little different in, in Europe, but what we see in the U.S. is oftentimes it is a lot of white sustainability professionals who get to director levels and who are on panels and kind of in these higher level conversations. So we were curious your perspective on that. It's been an interesting ride, definitely. The one thing I can say is that I've never felt any overt, you know, racism or, or things like that, which which is great. But I think the imposter syndrome is, has come out of just pretty much wherever I've been less so now which is also i think a great progress but wherever i be i was always the the only black dude there i think um throughout the 10 12 13 years i've been working in this industry i have known personally about four or five other black people working in this sector and i think it's also important to kind of say in this sector from a western perspective and a couple of Indians, like South Asian people, far more kind of Southeast Asian. But but generally it's been it's been me and, and turning up to places and and I was listening to, to something the other day which talked about status and, and how status is a fluid thing and you can have, you know, really kind of high levels of status in, in one setting and move to another room and and your status kind of falls. And that got me thinking about things, which was you know, in, in the little enclave that I used to be in, in, in my offices, I kind of was like, yeah, I've got my master's degree. I, I know my you know my stuff. And then you move to another area and all of a sudden it's like, oh, do, I, do I know my stuff? And then you look around and there's no one else like you and and there's no connection there, you know, the outward connection. I'm, I'm sure that you've you've heard of the, the nod, you know, where, where you know, black people walk down the street, kind of, they've never met each other before, just nod. And just not even having that, that kind of familiar uh, familiarity from that aspect has been has been really strange. I think where where I feel lucky is that my parents were very open. I lived in a predominantly white area in in London. Well, at least my my local area um, immediate surroundings were white, but it's London's very diverse anyway. And I grew up never really believing that I couldn't go to places. You know, I was I was fortunate enough in the way I was schooled and educated to be like, well, 
if you want to walk into the, you know, into, you know, a certain place, then why the hell not? You know, you belong there just as much as someone else. And so having that level of self-confidence helps when you enter a big space in, you know, in some conference room in Copenhagen and you look around and you're like, oh crap, there's like one or two other black people here and you're kind of, okay, okay, it's cool, <laughs> it's cool. But representation is is important. And I find that over time, you, or at least I have tried, been trying to pull and connect with people as we've been expanding this conversation on sustainability as well to be more inclusive and to also start asking the questions that wouldn't otherwise have been asked. So this whole thing of, well, you know, capitalism as neocolonialism, the whole thing of supply chains as a kind of remodeling of colonialism, certain types of people do not want to ask those questions. Whereas certain for certain types of people, there is only one obvious answer to that question. And if you're not able to bridge those things and have those different conversations, then you can't actually move forward on the sustainability agenda. You have to ask yourself very, very basic questions like why is it that the brown and black people within the apparel and footwear supply chains are the ones that are suffering the most? Why is it that brown and black people are the ones that are seen as less beautiful? Why is it it's the brown and black people who are the ones that are the the carers and the the you know the key workers and the people who are suffering from COVID. All those different aspects need to be asked. And those are sustainability questions as well. So the more I guess the the braver you become and the more self strength that you have in yourself that you belong there, the more you can push out and, and ask these questions. And I have to admit, this is not something that I that I had until relatively recently. And I'm I'm 41 now. And, you know, in my early 30s, there was no way I could have brought up any of these questions. And even as, you know, as, as recently as two years ago, when I did bring up these questions, my heart would be pumping, you know, because you, you know that they are questions that are difficult, that bring about uh, responses that people don't necessarily want to, to think about, to feel. But you know that if you don't ask those questions, then no one's going to consider them in the first place. And so this area, this kind of white middle-class area of sustainability should not be a white middle-class area. It should be one of the most diverse you know, job profiles you, you could ever see. It should be a unifying career point where you see all sorts of different types of people working for the greater good of you know, living in a world today <laughs> while considering the generations of the future and that's generations of all types and we should be in a position where we're humble enough whether we're you know, you know i'm i'm a londoner but i'm also you know Sierra Leonean. i'm also I have an american passport i have a dutch wife you know I've, i'm kind of global but we need to be humble enough to understand that we to to be clear about the fact that we do not get everything we do not know everything and that there are things that can be brought to us by especially the indigenous communities across the world who we often neglect that can blow our minds so it's been a really interesting journey to go from feeling very much like an outsider to this point where i'm using that outsider perspective to my advantage 
by asking the questions that people don't want to deal with. And if that makes people think that I'm a troublemaker, if that makes people think I don't care, it's not my problem. As long as I can have, uh, uh, I have the opportunity to, to kind of look after my family, have a roof over my head. The space needs to be challenged, and as a minority in that space, I want to open it up for other people as well to bring them into the fold and, and see how we can move forward. I really appreciate the points you brought up and your willingness to answer a question that is really personal, because it is so important to disrupt spaces with people who don't have the same life experience as the majority of the people in the space, which in the case of the sustainable fashion industry are mostly white U.S. or European people. It's challenging, but I think so important that we consider how do we continue to disrupt spaces. We talk a lot about justice and equity and moving away from language like diversity and inclusion, which still kind of implies that the default is whiteness, but it's really like, how do we have a space that equitably represents the voices that need to be in a room? And that doesn't necessarily look like what percentage of the population are XYZ identities, and let's make sure that's represented equally in the space, but whose voices have we historically silenced and not listened to, and making sure that those are the voices that we're listening to the most over those that we've listened to at the expense of so many other people for centuries. The levels of freaking out that's going on right now amongst, I would say, mostly predominantly white males of a certain generation, actually, I think of varying generations, is fascinating. And not even because they're suffering from actual harms. It's kind of, oh crap, something might happen. I might have to share a bit more of the pie. I'm going to act out. And... I find that fascinating. I find it a fascinating thing is that you still have so much compared to pretty much everyone else around you. And yet the prospect of losing just a little bit in order that other people can gain so much more frightens the hell out of you. And I I think we also need to have conversations or try to have conversations to help those people come around (laughs) because they are also a really important part of the, the puzzle as well. We need to acknowledge that there are people who are also losing who and, and get them up to the speed that there is something for them to gain when everyone else improves their, their situation as well. And the, the other thing I want to say is that as we, as we open up the space, and this is a thing that, again, I heard the other day, and I, and I find it really interesting, as we open up the space, there is an increase in discomfort, but that is okay because it's okay for all of us to be equally uncomfortable and not be able to answer questions so we can sit down together and go, crap, we better figure this out together. No, so let's all sit around and, and be uncomfortable with each other, <laughs> with each other's positions, with, you know, with whatever else it might be, but let's have honest conversations about it so we can start to be a bit more just and we can, we can be a lot more equitable in the way we treat people, but you can't do that if you're not willing to sit down with, with people who have different ideas from you. Definitely having the podcast was a reason why we wanted to create a space where we could have the conversations that are difficult. We could ask the questions that weren't being asked on panels or at conferences, and hopefully someday we'll do that in person as well. 
And we've really looked at sustainability, well, brand professionals as the entity in the system that has this leverage point in the fashion supply chain to make change. And so far, it feels like there is a really siloed approach to sustainability and therefore to how we're dealing with the systemic issues that run from supply to demand. And we're curious, what is the push forward to a truly integrated approach to sustainability from your perspective? This like breaking down of the silos. <laughs> it's kind of going back to the to what we talked talk about before. So the, the kind of interconnectedness of everything, you cannot get away from that. And it's really imperative that you have people in your organizations that can bring disparate things together so you can analyze them equally. It's harder, but it works better. And and I think my, my, my favorite example to use at the moment is, is this idea of um, clean tech. So you have a, a bunch of people who are now saying, we're going to install clean energy in lots of different areas where, where there are factories. Great. On the surface, you're like, well, who, who could say no to that? But then you start diving into it and you think, wait, wait a second, what, what are these panels for? So if you install a solar panel on a roof, in Bangladesh or Pakistan or wherever it is you're sourcing from, that just covers the electricity generation in that factory. Great for the carbon emissions from that factory. But what you haven't thought about is that the people working in those factories will still need to go and cook food. They will still need to burn coal or kerosene. They will still need to maybe chop down trees for firewood. Maybe they're chopping down trees from a place that actually acts as a carbon sink or a a flood, you know, that prevents flooding from taking place. That's a disconnect there that needs to be dealt with because it's not sufficient enough for you to put solar panels up on the roof. You also have to look at that community and say, well, okay, if there's solar panel on the roof, how can the local communities access that? How can we ensure that the excess energy that comes off there or there's battery storage or whatever it is can also benefit the local communities? If they can't, then the next best thing, which is the thing that I think most brands will want to avoid talking about as long as possible, is pay them a living wage. Just pay them. Because for for all that you, you want to do, all the programs you set up, all the interventions that you have, we're going to highlight, you know, you know, women's empowerment programs, and we're going to give um, technical training on efficiency. If you want to have long-term impact, pay people properly so they can take better control of their lives. And maybe not every single one of them does the thing that you want them to do, but at least they're making a valid choice based on their own situation then you're already moving the needle. They can then decide, actually, I do not want to be cooking at home inside using kerosene or using you know, coal because actually it's going to affect my, you know, my, my health. You know, I think you've got massive high, high levels of lung diseases in, in those places as well. So therefore, I want to move to a better quality stove. I want to start learning how to cook in a different way or I want to earn enough money so I can redo my kitchen or i can maybe move to a better area if you're thinking about climate change it's the same thing well if the people in those communities have money then they are in a better position to mitigate and adapt to the issues that come with climate change 
no amount of solar panels and temporary funding and donations is going to have that impact. And this is what, what I think is missing from, from the sustainability picture. It's, oh yeah, we've got this shiny thing over there that we're going to do and slap, you know, we've got really fun ways to fund it. You know, you've got foundations and agencies or whatever, when simply you can just say, pay people properly, either suck it up in the margins, don't take your margins, or increase the cost of your goods and tell people why you increase the cost of the goods and make them make a decision as, as to whether they're going to pay that. But there has to be a way to, to make sure that people are receiving the value of their work as opposed to the pittance of minimum wage that exists in these countries. So that would be my, my two cents on that. I just was wondering, Christian, so in a brand that I worked at previously, we were discussing the implementing or how to arrive at a minimum wage for the factories we were working with in our, in our supply chain. And someone had told me at that time that it's really complicated to figure out what a living wage is because you have to think of, yeah, the cost of living in that place. I I don't know. It just seemed like this very complex calculation that had to be made. Is that true? Well, first of all, I think it's an excuse. Is it complicated? It can be complicated. It's as complicated as you want it to be, really. But if you talk to the unions, the unions will come to you and say very, very, very clearly, a living wage is a negotiated wage, which is why then the whole question of unionization, freedom of association becomes really important. And this is also part of a broader question as to how do we want to deal with sustainability, ensuring that people have the opportunity to band together to fight for common causes is also uh, a step towards that. And union membership, unionization is a way to kind of do that on a legal basis because through unions, you can have collective bargaining agreements and therefore you can have negotiations around wages. Now, the other way you could have approached that is, we know for a fact that the wages that we, the, the factories are paying our workers are minimum wage for whatever country it might be. We also know, and if you ask workers, they'll tell you that that minimum wage is way too low. So as we're trying to figure out what the living wage is, why don't we also work with the factory to figure out how we can start to at least increase wages to get to that point because it's going to take you a while because minimum wages are so damn low. Now, there's also a whole bunch of people who have done a whole bunch of studies about how to calculate a living wage. So whether you want to use the anchor methodology, whether you want to use someone else, it's it's entirely up to you. But there are always there are frameworks there that exist. And you've got the Asia four wage, there's there's benchmarks, there's all these things that already exist. So for me, it's always seemed as an excuse that people have. Well, I don't know what the basket of goods are in that country. Like, well, go ask a union. Oh, but unions are, you know, I don't know if I can trust this union. So, well, ask three unions and, you know, <laughs> and, and do an average. So, so there's always a question. But the thing is, a lot of people don't even want to broach the question. It's not easy. And no one's saying it's easy because there are there are things that you have to do. You have to it's not only just about saying, hey, I want to increase the living wage. How can we do that? It's saying, well, if I want to increase, sorry, not the living wage, the, the amount we pay, I want to pay a living wage, then how do you reconcile that within your organization? If you don't have 100% of a factory and you still want to do that, then what do you do with the 50% of the factory that you don't, capacity that you don't use? So there's that question. Mm-hmm. Can you bring people in that factory with you? 
I don't know, can you? <laughs> what kind of relationship do you have? So there's all these different things that you have to take. Plus, do you have the process purchasing and sourcing practices in place that allows you to not just do this once, but to do it over and over and over and over and over again? So that it's not just a thing that's like, yeah, we've got a bonus this year and oh crap, I'm sorry, we've got to go back to what we were before because actually we calculated it wrong. So the calculation of the minimum of the living wage itself is just the starting point. It's the implementation and the embedding this into your systems that actually makes the difference. And in, in terms of can you do this once or can you do this to have a long-term impact on your supply chain? I think also what you what you touched on in talking about the excuses that are made up for why we can't pay workers a living wage, we're really comfortable in the sustainability space with a paternalistic model where we decide solutions in closed systems that aren't really connected to the stakeholders that are most impacted by our decisions. And we talked a little bit about this with one of our other guests, just the the importance of a truly people-centered approach to sustainability. And I think that's a little bit of what you're getting at, that we, we can't have an integrated approach that isn't centering people, because if we're disconnected from the people, we don't know what the solutions are, and we can continue to live in a bubble where we make decisions not fully considering the impacts of those decisions or even having a clear understanding of the real priority for those decisions. It's easy for someone who's making way over a living wage in a country like the United States to say, well, I'm not sure we can do it. It's a little complicated and make excuses for all the reasons why we can't move in that direction. Being someone who isn't impacted by that issue specifically, and we need so much to be considering the voices and the needs of all people within the system, which I know there are organizations who do that, but I think from a business perspective, there is work to be done and even really very critically looking at how we're making decisions because sometimes we have the best intentions. And to your point, we have all these programs about women's empowerment and things on the ground in communities. And sometimes, like you said, maybe the answer is, do we just need to pay our supply chain partners more so that then they can pay their employees more and they can make decisions themselves around where their money should be going as opposed to us totally external from the country making a decision about what their priorities should be. It is. And, and that's why I think the the paternalistic, but also the kind of neocolonialism aspect comes out as well. It's almost like you're you're slapping these people in the face and saying, I'm sorry, but you don't know what's good for you. So we're going to come in and tell you. And um, if you're not happy with it, then um, we'll just go to a different country and source our, our, our products there. And that's condescending, it's patronizing, and it's also incredibly unfair. And we don't need to go into the legacy of colonialism and and things like that. But I think for the people sitting in this virtual space, we'll have an idea that what we're experiencing now is a result of systems that were put in place a very long time ago. And to get out of that, we need to do the hard work. And that hard work whether you're talking from development circles, whether you're talking from, from, from wherever, the common knowledge is that the best people to fix the situation are the people who are in that situation. If you want to come and you want to help, sit down, do the hard work, do the focus groups, get people involved, get people band together, work on democratic systems, work on you know, combining and, and unionization and, and the power of the, the multitudes because that's how you get change. What is scary about that, though, is that once you empower people, it's very hard to take that away. And the worry, 
I think, is that if you help people become too self-sufficient, they might realize certain things about their lives, about their contributions, about their own abilities and capabilities that they may not want to do the thing that you want them to do. But that's not our decision to make. That is, I mean, the, the least thing, and I say we here as sustainability professionals, as business people, the least we can do is open up those spaces that we also say are dear to making the situation better. Look at all the codes of conduct. There's freedom of association right there in black and white. But then you ask companies about freedom of association, they're like, yeah, I don't know if I support unions. Oh, I don't know if I want to dive into that. Because they understand what unionization can bring. The work is hard. And I think we've tried often to, to find shortcuts. Like, well, we know, you know, women's empowerment is a thing. You know, gender should be taken more seriously. So therefore, if we do some gender programs and, and, and some women's empowerment programs, then everything will magically become better. It's like, well, did you talk to the people on the ground about it? Just seems like the like yeah. brand professionals need to recognize that the race to the top is just as harmful to the as the race to the bottom. It is, it is, and and that it's a hard thing to marry as well. Because what what you are in the sustainability space is you're a quasi social worker, you're an economist, you're a sociologist, you're an anthropologist, you're you're a chemicals management specialist. You're all these things that that are that are trying to help a business that is focused on profit into you know to to do something that's not necessarily that it wasn't necessarily built to create and in that you've got to find a way to maneuver and sometimes you just want to do the easy thing you know sometimes you know the the deadlines and the strategies and things are so written in such a way that you want to find quick solutions. You want to be able to say, yeah, I did this amount of training over this period of time and you know this was the impact. You know, so so what if it was only in three factories? Well, I've done my bit, take off we go. But yeah, the ability to think a little bit more broadly about yeah, let's you know, let's raise all boats and let's do the hard work can have and will have a much stronger impact. Kristen, you've brought up a few of a number of times the legacies of colonialism that we are dealing with. Since the current paradigm that we are working and living under is really born from the, you know, the history of slavery and basically like this capitalist system that we're, that we're operating under now is, you know, I feel like was born in a way that was wrong and kind of built off of oppressing and, and harming people. Do you think that we need to burn everything down or that we can adapt this model that we currently have into a better version of itself? That's the, that's the question. Um, I, I used to think that we just needed to burn everything down and, and, and start again, but I don't think so anymore. And, and that's basically because we as people get really, really good at blaming the tools. You know, capitalism is a thing. It's 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 not a, it doesn't have a political stance. It doesn't have a, a an opinion on things. It's just a thing that was created in order to move money from one place to another. We're always going to need to move money from one 
place to another until we get to this miracle Star Trek world where nobody has to you know, earn a living. It's, it's just not going to, you know, it, it's always going to be needed. The thing is, as humans, we have, we have a massive say in how, how capital is used. We have a massive say in, in what is valued in society. These things don't just happen. You know, we make them happen. And to oversimplify things to say we just need to dismantle capitalism and build something new, that doesn't solve the problem. The, the problem is a problem of inequality. You know, the problem is that um, even though we're much better now at seeing, you know, the similarities in people rather than the differences, we are still living in the, you know, with a legacy of a society that was built on differences. And just changing the financial structure of the system doesn't change that. You know, to to create the new system, you would also have to basically erase everyone's memories <laughs> and create, you know, recreate a kind of miracle matrix world in which everyone was always equal, has been for the longest time and will always be. So burning down the system, I don't think works. I think, so the question I think isn't really about dismantling the system as such, but reframing how we relate to each other, reframing how we relate to money, reframing and understanding what we value as societies and trying to put the, we do value people. (laughs) One thing that we like to ask all of our guests is what's the number one question we should be trying to answer as an industry in order to achieve real change? Yeah, I I thought I thought about that for a while, and actually, um, I really don't know. I really think that the industry doesn't work because we're so embedded in certain ways of thinking that we can't look at other things or other systems for fear that things might change too much. And so, I guess it's not so much of a of a question as as it is a a suggestion to just look around for opportunities <laughs> just because this is the way it's been done for the last 20 years or so doesn't mean it's the way it needs to be done for the next 20 years and i know people are looking at this but, but really the system in and of itself hasn't existed that long but look at the impact the negative impact it's had yeah it's had some good impacts you know there's there's been some success stories from the industry but actually let's if we look at this in a different way how can we, you know, what can we learn from other sectors? What can we learn from, from, from other ways of doing things? How can we open ourselves up to, to being inspired by, by others? That's a great question. Lastly, you are someone who's doing incredible work in the industry who we really admire. And we were curious who is what we're terming unspun hero or someone who you view as doing incredible work in the fashion industry that you'd like to give a shout out to. The first person that sticks out to me is um, is Kim Vanderveert, who is doing her own podcast called Manufactured. And she's got a really interesting background because she's white Dutch and spent some time managing a factory herself. So she's got this really interesting dynamic within her as well. Of, I've been there, but I also see <laughs> where the problems come from and trying to marry that. I think she's doing some really interesting work, at work and opening some up some really personal questions 
that that we need to to, to deal with. So I would say that she is um, probably one of the people that I kind of uh, follow and also um, should probably talk to more. Maybe have her on speed dial just to get her her thoughts on issues. But it's 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 a pretty fascinating. Yeah, she brings pretty interesting experience, but also thoughts and ideas and connections to the table as well. We agree with you there. We've been um, tuning into her podcast and definitely have our eyes on her. She's doing amazing work. Well, Christian, thank you so much for joining us today. It really was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you all so much for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. Huge thanks to this week's guest, Christian Smith, for sharing his perspective on the industry. You can follow him on Twitter at Inclusi, on Instagram at Inclusi underscore, or on LinkedIn at Christian Smith forward slash. To join the conversation and learn more about us, follow us on Instagram at WeArePopulation or visit our website, WeArePopulation.com. Unspun is produced by Population and mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.